Your attention is precious. Pulled in a million directions for a million different reasons. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina works hard to make sure your health insurance isn't one of the many things distracting you from what's important. By making healthcare easier to navigate, we help keep your focus on the moments that matter most. Like dinner with loved ones. Letting you focus on you. That's the benefit of Blue. Learn more at BenefitOfBlueSC.com. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah. Yes. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A truck tractor semi-trailer that had stopped at like a Walmart. I think it was a Walmart parking lot in San Antonio. There was like 20 migrants that died in the back because it was just too hot, right? There was a few that had managed to get the doors open and escape. That driver was probably waiting for the next leg of that criminal enterprise to take over. I'm not sure. So I'm reading the headlines, right? And they had a picture of the truck and I looked at it and it keyed off to me. And I'm like, wow, that looks like very familiar. And I I, I recollected a particular moment and I thought, no way. Like what are the chances, right? Next day, they released the booking photo of the driver, and I remember distinctly looking up at the cab of that truck as I drove by it, and I saw the driver, and that was him. It just kind of makes me think shit. I mean, I hate that about how the world works. I wish I could have stopped that truck and potentially saved a whole bunch of lives. Welcome to Mike Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant, and we don't give a shit about your feelings. A lot of injuries. We had the vehicles completely out. And strangely enough, also, a Cobra overhead watched it. Wow. Did he they... saw, the, saw the impact from the area. He was heading back to Al-Assad. Immediately started circling for us, looking for the trigger man. Because that's also our, our mindset is like, whoever's still able, able and capable, dismount. And because, so, and not to throw any shade on the army, like, it is what it is. At that time when this IED tactic was was still new, the army was getting hit, and they were pushing out of the kill zone. They were just getting hit and pushing. And when we kind of got into the country and we were learning about this, we were like, yeah, we're Marines. We're not doing that. Like, if we get hit, we're going to go try to find them and kill them. We're pushing through the whole platoon online. We're going to go clear buildings. We're going to get the trigger man. We're going to go fucking kill him. And unfortunately, again, we're out in the middle of the desert. There's nothing to look at. Like, how the hell did this happen? How were they in place? Was it, was it remote detonated? Was it um, a pressure plate? Were they, were they anti-tank mines, which were also common? No clue. Cobra looks overhead, doesn't see anything. Lands, right? Just 100 meters in the middle of the desert. I thought that was weird to see that aircraft land essentially in the kill zone on the X and was like, basically we sent a couple of Marines out there and he was just wanting to see if we, he needed to help with organizing air evac of any kind. And uh, we were still close enough to Al-Assad. We had vehicles and we had kind of rehearsed our bump plan, getting all of our gear injured off, get them into the other trucks and got off the X. And, and that was it after that. So 
we confirmed they're there. That's exactly what they wanted to do. And we really had no control over it. And again, from the big picture infantry point of view, there's going to be times where like a battalion commander has to push a infantry element in a direction where he knows that they're going to take contact. That's the idea is to gain contact with the enemy. But I just kind of, that lack of control, like maybe let's just step up the sniper presence around that area in a concealed, like clandestine manner and have them observe that area to see if they can pick up on any enemy movements first. And then maybe they can, and we can proactively take precision shots or call in uh, Cass before sending an infantry squad out there to just get jacked up. Because I guarantee, I mean, and again, like there's an acceptable level of, of, of casualties, right? And like go, no go criteria. You take one casualty, you can manage that on the objective and you keep pushing, you know, take eight. Yeah. Not so much, you know, this, my squad's ineffective at that time, you know? Yeah. So now we're going back and that, that just that feeling of not being able to just knowing it's going to happen. Yep. It happened. Yeah. That, that was shitty. I can imagine. Uh, that's tough. Um, that entire deployment for the rest of it was that just kind of baiting. Yep. From then on out, we just kind of stuck to that AO trying to prevent IDs. Yeah. And it was like mobile patrols and foot mobile patrols setting in OPs. Um, Any big firefights? Nothing. Um, so you go home from that. At that point, how was your head? How was your mentality? Was it sound? Or were you... Uh, it, it was... Yeah, yeah. I didn't know it at the time, but the I think, you know, some some combat stress was certainly starting to kind of creep in. I started having some uh, some shit that did affect me later on, um, which at the time I was super reluctant to bring up and talk about. Nobody was talking about anything like that, you know? Yeah. You know, there was no talk of PTSD or combat stress or, or managing it, you know, or it just wasn't happening. So you just were dealing with that you know, on your own. And, uh, you know, a big part of mine was just in my sleep, man. I just yeah. fucked with my sleep. Yeah. I couldn't sleep. And I was having like, like just these, uh, terrible dreams, just fucking in combat related, terrible dreams. Right. And, and it, always the theme is like helplessness. Like I'm in a, I'm in a shitty gunfire gunfight and I don't have my gun or my guys are dying next to me because I, you know, I couldn't do anything. That was always the, you know, this reoccurring theme and it, <laughs> I would freak out at night. And uh, so that, that kind of uh, was, you know, was hoping, you know, man, it's go away. It's just the just right after this deployment. But unfortunately on that, la that next deployment, which happened very quick, uh, yeah, I had to deal with that. And like my squad got like used to waking me up. They're like, it's just hallway, just wake them up. It's all good. And I'm, I, I guess I feel fortunate that like they weren't like, I wasn't outcasted or anything. Yeah. You know, it was just like, hey man, I mean, it's, whatever, just wake him up, you know, because I was, I would thrash, you know, wherever I was and I really had no control. And that kind of became a worry for me later on once I got into Marsoc, knowing that I'd be in smaller teams and non-permissive environments and thinking to myself like, shit, man, am I going to have this creep up on me at a time where it's nighttime and I got to be real quiet, you know, and I was, that always kind of worried me. Uh, fortunately, it didn't happen, it didn't happen, but. Oh, that's good. All right. Hey guys, I want to take a, a second to talk about ads. Um, and this is not an ad. This is me talking about the ads. I know that 
Um, you know, sometimes we get comments of, of people bitching about the ads. There's too many ads or they're too long or what have you. And I, I want to clear two things up, which is number one is that my slash our team's ability to bring you guests and, and bring them in and, and the accommodations and, and the entire process that it takes to produce these shows to the level with which we do uh, requires funding, you know, and the, the sponsors give us an ability to bring these shows to you. So while I understand that everybody wants zero ads and, and everything bunched together and, and what have you, this is how we, we bring this show to you. Uh, you know, we're a very small team. We're very fortunate to, to be able to do it. Uh, but we do still have to uh, to pay bills and, and bring that to you. So keep that in mind. That's the first point. And the second point is that I can assure you with 100% accuracy is that there is not a sponsor or a product that I talk about on here that isn't something that I use, okay, that, that I either regularly use or always use or have used. And, and I refuse to budge on that, okay? So we, we get... Uh, offers for for sponsors regularly that, that get turned down because it's not stuff that I use or would use. So keep that in mind. Uh, have a little bit of flexibility in terms of our ads and, and realize that they're products that I believe in, that I stand behind, and they're what, what make this show possible. So if you support these advertisers, these sponsors, that is supporting the show. Thank you. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. So um, after that third deployment with infantry, is that when you crossed over into MARSOC? Yeah. Yes, I did that third deployment, Fallujah again, kind of that tail end of it, and um, not nothing super significant, fortunately. And then I actually re-enlisted at that point and stayed on as, a, as an instructor at CACS. I mentioned that before. That, that name kind of changed and turned over to what was called Mojave Viper, and it was basically the infantry's uh, I mean, the, the Marine Corps' um, pre-deployment training location. So every infantry unit would go out to 29 Palms, of course, because the train is similar to where we're, everybody was deploying to, and um, do this unit exercise, and I became like an instructor controller out there. So I re-enlisted re uh, at that time. So again, back to kind of like the feeling and the sentiment of like returning again on that, that third deployment, it was like, shit, at this point, I've almost died a, a few times. Like, there was a big feeling of, like, uh, there's only, there's only, you know, cat only has nine lives type of yeah. deal. Like, you're only, you can only have so many close calls. So that was kind of a shitty feeling knowing that, like, yeah, well, this very well may be the one, right? Fortunately, it didn't happen. But at that time, I also kind of got a little bit more motivated. Being just a kid kind of working through some combat deployments, not even sure if I wanted to continue doing this as a, a career to somebody who was like, not only do I want to do it, but I want to get better. And I want to, you know, I want to be better. I want to be more knowledgeable. So I, I, knew, I knew if I went to this position that I could, because it was all about like instructing and evaluating units working in that environment, a counterinsurgency environment. And so I was like, that's where I want to go. And so I did that for a year. The op tempo was crazy. 
28 days on straight, saw almost every single Marine Corps infantry unit rotate through there as an instructor, gained a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge. And I had, I'm, so I'm a West Coast guy, you know, in the Marine Corps. And I remember seeing like a Marine Corps Times article or something in the PX about the potential of this new Marine Corps elite unit being formed. And you know, it would be beyond recon or force recon. And I just thought to myself, that sounds amazing. Like, how could you have something kind of maybe even potentially more elite than force recon? And from an infantry guy's perspective, and also watching and seeing recon rotate through those uh, training cycles that I was able to. And I thought, if I ever deploy again, if I ever go to another operational unit, like, and I will, I, I, I want to be there with people who want to be there, who volunteered to be there. And, and there was some criteria where they had to pass and you know get assessed to be there. And I had a guy on a, from an East Coast unit where so MARSOC had already formed in early, late 05, early 06. I still had no clue. Most of us on the West Coast had absolutely no clue. And a guy on the East Coast, an East Coast unit was rotating through, and he told me about it. He's like, yeah, we got this new unit forming up at Camp Lejeune. They work for SOCOM. They don't even work for the Marine Corps. They wear civilian clothes all the time. They they deploy to foreign countries all over the world, and they get special duty pay. and And I was just like, "Holy shit! Like this is that sounds amazing, you know? Um, small teams, uh, big boy rules, completely different from like big belt fed infantry." And I'm just like, "Jesus, where, how do I find <laughs> out more information about this?" Right? Yeah. And it's funny because not again, like this is '05. It, you know, you, we're not just like Googling nowadays and you want information like that. It's so easy. Yeah. Back in that day, there was just, it was just <clears throat> word of mouth. So we started making phone calls and um, got connected with a few of the guys that were already over there. Some of the first guys in Marsoc and started just picking their brain about how we can get over there and what we can do. And fortunately for us, me and a, a good friend of mine, we kind of were both like, fuck it, dude, let's just, let's go do this. Let's, let's try everything we can to, to make this happen. And again, also the East Coast Marine Corps is completely different. So we're not really familiar with anything. East Coast, Camp Lejeune, nothing. And, uh, but we got in contact with the monitor and the, the guy who was running assessment selection and, um, or selection rather. The ANS program hadn't even been stood up at that point. Which was ANS? Assessment selection. Oh, there was no, so the current pipeline to become a Marine Raider is called the ITC, the Individual Training Course. That wasn't even stood up yet. It was, they had a seven-month pipeline, um, and they called it the pipeline. And um, so at that time, you know, we made all the connections. We learned more about the unit and uh, fooled my wife into thinking that it would be a good idea and that we could move across the country and, uh, starting this new unit and definitely probably one of the best decisions I ever made. Luckily, it worked out. It was hard. So yeah. tricking your wife was one of the best decisions. <laughs> well, did you meet her on the West Coast or was she from back home? Man, or? we went to high school together. Oh, shit. That's cool. So she was, she's been awesome. She's been with me this whole time, every deployment, all the crazy shit, being gone all the time. And Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, all right, so you go – you you get picked up or you you go through it. How how uh, describe that whole process? Yeah, so it was pretty different because again, it was the beginning of Marsoc, so everything was still like being stood up, and their process of of forming their the official pipeline was still kind of in the works. But 
I thought our pipeline was pretty unique because basically at the time what they did is they took first and second force recon, took them away from the Marine Corps, formed them into these new units in MARSOC, and they were basically like, you guys are just going to continue doing what you're doing, which at the time was um, special reconnaissance and direct action. So RNS, you're gonna guys, you guys are going to keep doing RNS. You guys are going to keep doing raids. Same structure, same type of platoons, but we're going to have a third unit. We're going to stand them up, and we're going to we're going to draw from the big infantry, from any MOS in the infantry. You had to have combat deployments, and they were really looking for people who had language aptitude, because that unit was going to be more of the unit that was be more what like traditional Army SF is today, feeling the FID mission the foreign internal defense mission and the uw mission so going around to all these foreign countries small team you know link up with a, a partner nation force and build them up with them work with them equip them and train them into a position where they can be effective for combating threats in their own ao that way they kind of don't ever spill over to america and become an issue and that way we maintain relationships geographically all around the world with kind of these elite forces and our allies and that was the unit that I aligned to because I wasn't in recon. But this was still my way into MARSOC and into SOCOM. And I'm like, that that sounds even better because it's something different. You know, it wasn't Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, there was the potential where we had teams deploying to East Africa, South America, Central Asia, um, countries near Russia. And you were going to get assigned a language and you were going to have to learn this foreign language. And your role on the team, you're going to have much more responsibility than just kind of being the number one man or the breacher or kind of like that standard direct action platoon setup where you're just a shooter, which, you know, we're Marines. We love shooting and everything. That's a big part of our heritage. But there was learning a lot about a lot more of this unit, like really drew me in. And, uh, you know, there we had some teams that weren't even deploying in you know, in a regular uniform. They're just come in, in civilian attire, the entire deployment. And uh, so I thought man, that was really intriguing to me. So that's the unit that I fell into, seven-month pipeline. We incorporated language training within the pipeline. Now that comes later. But every weekend we were doing our language. My sign language was French. I got aligned to a East Africa team. Initially it was supposed to be Central Africa. That got changed. But our pipeline, was, I think, was very unique. Seven months, it was really... Uh, tough, a, a mix of a lot of what it is now, uh, small unit tactics, CQB, foreign weapons, um, SEER, and you you learned a specialty though. Now, or at least they were whenever I was still in, Marine Raiders were getting the 18 series school seats, which was great. You get that specialty and you can you bring that to the team, right? Guys, go to 18 Bravo, 18 Charlie. The Marine Corps didn't have any of those internal capabilities. Um, but at the time, they just kind of did their best in our pipeline. Um, I, I got assigned to be like the weapons dude on the team, me and another counterpart. And initially, it was just an 11-man team. And so what our cadre did is they got basically a, a suite from the 18 Bravo package in, at Bragg, and we had all those foreign weapons. And, you know, you just got good on foreign weapons and everything, U.S. weapons crew serves, indirect mortars, and everything. So I enjoyed learning all that because I was just a regular O311. You know, I didn't have experience with all those other weapon systems. And that was the role on my team. 
and we kind of graduated as a team and 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 started prepping for our first deployment so you speak french that's what i took out all that yeah a little bit <laughs> a little bit i mean can you still speak it enough to have like general conversation no 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 you could ask where the bathroom is and shit and that's about it pretty much yeah um but funny enough because l later on in life i get forced forced i mean it was well, by I'm choice told. to to know even cross different career to learn spanish yeah and it was weird because as i was having to speak spanish i would mix in french and not realize it you know so you're speaking franish yeah it was, it was crazy um it's where was the first deployment with uh horn of africa east africa yeah can, what all can you say about uh uh close to somalia yeah and I mean, as far as what you were doing and yeah yeah F total uh fid mission our team actually deployed with an oda there um an oda from third group and our our mission was uh we were kind of training a the area's premier counterterrorism force to gain capability and be able to combat al-shabaab yeah um before christian craighead and that that whole mall situation mm -hmm. we were there no, in no, that sure. area uh been to that mall a few times luckily not into the circumstances that he was there but um do you know him no yeah. no but the, those those dudes were there when we were there yeah british um that area uh in particular country kenya colonized by by britain so it's got a pretty good uh britain influence there yeah their army has a, a a big influence and um so we were we were you know training those guys and then of course for us the hopes of being able to kind of go act out on more of like an active advisory role with them and and um but at that time they're just that threat wasn't credible enough in that area so you know uh non-kinetic regular fid deployment which a bunch of soft guys hate you know yeah. they hate that deployment that type that mission set but it was all new to us man and we we're like dude this is badass you know so like it was funny man everything's new to us this this socom world this socom environment and and there was a big push for us to like hey we're we are operating with odas and seal platoons and you know you want to be a special operations force you, you better be as good as them so there was this push for us to really push the limit. I mean, push our training to the, the, the hardest that we could to be. We wanted to be a formidable option so we could have those missions and have the same type of opportunities that SEALs and SF did. And I remember we, so we deployed with this ODA and we were doing some cross planning in the States before heading over. And again, we were also trying to embrace, we're in special operations now. So when we went to Bragg to go link up with them in their team room, we went in civvies. So we're in civilian attire, you know, we just kind of expected they would be too. And we get to their team room and we jump in there and everybody's in camis and they look at us and they're like, what the fuck? And we're like, <laughs> what's up? You know, and they're like, you, you fucking Marines. belt fed Marines. We thought for sure you guys would be in camouflage, you know, utilities. And they're like, That's so we, we wore our, you know, our <laughs> fucking best. camis just you know and make sure that you know we're you know and we're like no nah, man we're we're in a civilian attire today <laughs> it was funny that's but, awesome um, but yeah we were around a lot of really capable really smart people and and you know what to be completely honest too man i there was a bit of imposter syndrome there for me um just like big shoes to fill i mean everybody's the best of the best 
and you know working with dudes that can speak three languages but they can also you know shoot us you know maintain a minute of angle at a grand with a sniper rifle or shoot pistol really really well or you know throw a ruck on their back and just not stop and go all day long or get in the water and fin their ass off and so you know for me coming from the infantry and not already kind of being from that recon background i did have a bit of imposter syndrome i had you know but i think in a sense though that kept me frosty man like that that pushed me to all right well then guess what dude you know what that means like you, sh- you should be maintaining your skills yeah like you we've learned these baseline of skills and that culture i think it made for a good culture i'll give you another another example my entire team on the weekend on our off time went to brag and like would go shoot uspsa matches mm. um <clears throat> like we would go get our guns from the armory on base you know get a government rented van go to brag and go to an area there um where a lot of uh, you know the jsoc guys and tier one dudes would go shoot matches so you had a lot of that influence there so we were able to learn from them actually shot with pat mack there at the time didn't even know who he was that's awesome but um so we were constantly trying to improve and, and uh and get better yeah, yeah that's cool that, that i mean to to be there in its inception as as a plank owner basically is yep. pretty special um so the first deployment was a fid mission um what was the rest of your time as a marsat guy like same repeat mission um went there and did it again had a great time as well you know um nothing crazy on that deployment at all we're kind of hoping for it um but still never got there was also uh the number two like geographic hvt running around that we were getting intel about and so we were and this guy was tied like old school al-qaeda was associated with the 98 embassy bombings in dar es salaam tanzania and nairobi kenya so we were kind of hoping that they we would get tasked to assist in trying to track this dude down or go get him go snatch him up didn't happen unfortunately um but still had a great time did a whole lot of stuff there and I think we really helped those guys gain a lot of capability. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I had kind of done my team time uh, or a good amount of team time. And a lot of guys were transitioning over to our schoolhouse to go fill an instructor billet. And this is at the time, unfortunately, also where I think it's kind of in, ends up playing into how I, I got I got forced out. I didn't get out voluntarily. Uh, I would have I was as a matter of fact, I would have retired last year. And that was the idea, was to really stay on a team and operate as, as long as I could. But, you know, whatever. God has a way of making things work. It's all good. But um, so I go to my uh, kind of wanting to transition over into the instructor position. Again, you go to the schoolhouse, you get assigned to a section, and you get really good at that shit. That's the CQB section or RNS or Amphib or SEER. And I always really enjoyed SEER, uh, and that's kind of weird, but again that was a skill set to gain going into that environment that intrigued me knowing that knowledge and knowing how to be self-sufficient and knowing how to you know get yourself out of like one of the worst situations possible being able to have that knowledge those tools really intrigued me so fortunately i ended up going into that section at the schoolhouse and uh, i'll kind of try to combine these things together because i was reluctant to re-enlist it was at the time where it was time for me to re-enlist but at the time marsoc was still so junior it was they were it was basically a, 
but they were calling a five-year commitment with the potential after you had done your five years to go back to the big infantry. And all of us at this point, after we'd gotten a taste of this way more of an actual warrior uh, type of community and culture, we we're like, no way. You know, we got, now we finally have gear. You know, now we're finally getting schools and, and more and more school seats are opening. And it's like, there's no, I'm not, I can't go back to the infantry after this. So a lot of people were getting out. They were, they didn't want to take the chance, right? You take the chance, re-enlist, and then it doesn't happen. And now you got to go spend the remaining four years in the infantry again, or, or do you sign the line and hope for the best? And it's like, it's the government, man. It's the Marine Corps. You really want to take that gamble. So I had teammates of mine, good friends of mine, my team leader. Um, they, they didn't take the gamble. They, they got out and they, they got out at a time where the MOS wasn't online. And I kind of feel shitty about that for them because I mean, whatever they were in Marsoc, they were plank owners, but they, they did not like on their DD 214, it does not say 0372, which is the critical skills operator MOS, the Marine Raider MOS. I, I wanted to hang on. So I, I, uh, extended and I thought, well, let me just do another year and I won't get out. See if it, see if the MOS comes online. And uh, so I'm working at the schoolhouse at this point, and I'm learning everything. Sear, it's badass. You know, we work at that cadre. We support a few different elements. We support the ITC at this point. It's established, and they're it's a well oil machine. So we're pumping dudes through the pipeline, and a portion of their pipeline is Sear. So as the Marsoc Sear section, we are facilitating that three-week package for them as part of their pipeline but we're also maintaining skill sets for teams so sometimes like a team sergeant would come to us and be like hey i'm getting ready to go do an op a training exercise in this state and he'd be like i'm not telling my dudes but i want y'all to come and 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 enroll us up and incorporate us on incorporate a seer scenario into this training so that was awesome so we were also doing like tailored training for our units and um, worked with a awesome cadre of dudes because in order to fill those spots, again, this is a new capability Marshawk doesn't possess. So we're, we're, we're getting experience in guys from all over, NSW, guys from um, Army SF that had retired and spent time at the SEER cadre and schoolhouse at Bragg, um, Navy guys uh, from, from Maine and the, uh, the Navy school, guys from the West Coast um, and the West Coast California base seer school that they have warner springs all into our cadre kind of fit into this awesome group of experience guys from all walks of life whenever it comes to the military not just special op guys some some aviation dudes that just ended up taking that route as well um so having a lot of fun doing that learning that teaching quite a bit um and i went to re-enlist because finally the mos hit i, I, I kind of couldn't believe it I'm like, this actually worked. Like, my plan worked. Yeah. I'm on an extension. The MOS hit. I'm good to go. And um, I go to the career planner. I'm like, this is awesome. I'm ready. I got the MOS. And she's like, yeah, not so fast. The Marine Corps is in incorporating a new rule. It was service limitations rule. Back in the day, it used to be, if you had been in the Marine Corps and not been promoted to E6 by th 13 years, they basically give you a separations package. It's like an early retirement. They're like, you got to go. You know, pat you on the back. Thank you for service. Honorable discharge. Chunk of change. See ya. You're forced out. All right. As you guys know, the lifestyle changes and the, and the fast pace that we live, uh, it makes it difficult to get in 
you know, all of the vitamins, minerals, fruits, vegetables, etc. cetera. Uh, started working with First Form. Uh, it's a great company. Uh, everybody knows who they are, and, and uh, I've been trying their stuff for a while now, and I, I love it. Uh, in particular, their OptiGreens 50. It's a precisely formulated green superfood powder uh, that increases overall immune system support and digestive health. Uh, 80% of your immune system is located in your gut and digestive tract, so healthy digestion is essential for overall health and wellness. It's got 50 hand-chosen ingredients, um, and it's taste and texture like no other product. It's not gritty. It's got a sweet berry flavor. Uh, 100% of all the greens ingredients are grown and manufactured in the USA. Um, you know, for me, this is a, a really good one-stop shop to uh, to get all the extra stuff that you need. There's a lot of greens out there. This is uh, a product I stand behind, I take, I enjoy it, uh, and and notice a remarkable difference in uh, just overall the way that I feel. My my gut health and digestion is uh, is noticeably improved. It's a green superfood blend. It's a phytonutrient blend. Uh, it's a glycemic balance blend. It's not going to spike your, your blood sugar. It's got digestive enzyme blends and probiotics in it. It's a great product. Uh, Andy Frazella and, and First Form is a phenomenal company that uh, you know is very supportive of the veteran community. And uh, I just I can't say enough good things about him and the company. So OptiGreens 50, uh, just a, a great product. And uh, they're, they're a fantastic sponsor and supporter of Mike Drop. Hey guys, I wanted to uh, talk about something that I've incorporated into my daily routine, my morning routine that has had a remarkable impact on my life. Uh, it's called BioPro Plus. Uh, it's a non-synthetic HGH uh, treatment. And, uh, you know, every year after puberty, your HGH levels naturally drop uh, and exponentially sometimes uh, can even drop by, by 50% by the time you're 35 uh, I train jujitsu three or four times a week. I lift three or four times a week. And BioPro Plus, uh, without question, uh, enhances my ability to train more uh, days per week, harder, recover faster, uh, enhance performance. I cannot say enough good things about this product. I've been taking it for a few months. Uh, it's, it's remarkable, and I will continue to, to do so. Um, if you want to, uh, you know, perform better, look better, feel better. Uh, I, I can't stress it enough. I, I've tried BioPro Plus, uh, and I encourage you to go to bioproteintech.com, uh, and if you want to get $30 off your first order, use the code MikeDrop, M-I-K-E-D-R-O-P. And again, that's bioproteintech.com. I cannot stress enough. This stuff has uh, been a game changer for me as I've gotten older. The Marine Corps at that time was, <clears throat> was downsizing? And I fell victim to this rule because I was still an E5 at the 10-year mark. And they moved it from 13 years to 10 years. So I had a few options. And one of them was just really straightforward. It was like, hey, look, you can stay. We'll have to extend you again in order for you to get seen on a promotion board. If you get promoted to E6, you get one shot. Where back in the day, a Marine could get passed over two, three times. It wouldn't be As long as he's got time left on the contract... He'll get promoted eventually. And promotion for me was like, of course I'm going to get promoted, you know. I'm doing things that are well above and beyond my peers in the regular Marine Corps. And then all of just the normal shit that you had to have, right, like high PFT, good shooting score, all that stuff. Had all that. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. No big deal. little bump, but I'll go on the promotion board. I'll get promoted. That's expected anyways. I had done everything <clears throat> that I needed to like there's um sergeant's course is, is an option at at the time it was and um that was actually 
So you can kind of go to a sergeant's course or a different option that was more related to your field, but it was called PME, and you kind of had to have it, that check in the box to get promoted. And I went to, like, the big Marine Corps one, which was just the basic sergeant's course where MOSs from all over kind of come over. And they, if you go that route, it kind of makes you look like you're a little bit more well-rounded and you're learning more about the big Marine Corps. And I even, like, scored really high in that course. So promotion's not an option for me. No big deal. Go on the promotion board, and I get passed. List comes out. I'm looking down the H's, and my name's not there. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, is it, did they make a mistake? Like, how, how did I not get promoted? Because I know what the outcome is at this point. The only other outcome was now I'm out. And I'm now forced out. And I'm like, shit. Like, is this happening? And, you know, and I'm notifying my chain out. of command. I did, and that's the other unfortunate part is I never really found out what, the, what was the issue, right? Because there's a promotion board. It's in Quantico. And I, it took me a few years, but I think, I think I know why. But it really took me a few years of like taking it all in and all the circumstances and elements of. Because it what you take a picture, right, in your service Charlie uniform. And on your packet, when they're briefing you, it's like a picture of you and like your Marine Corps record, right? And I'm like, so you, you hear stories of like, make sure your ribbons are all right, because <laughs> if one's backwards, you know, you'll get passed. Yeah. And I'm like, double checking on my ribbons and shit. I'm, nope, they're all good. I look squared away. Like, uh, I'm, and so I even had that packet. There's a specialist in Quantico. That's all he does for a living, civilian. Had him do a workup on my, it's called an OMPF. And I'm like, just tell me what it was. What did they see on there that denied me or whatever, you know? And he came back and he's like, dude, I'm really sorry, but all I can tell you is that you're not even competitive for promotion. You're highly competitive for promotion. So you were like the top, you would be, should be characterized as like one of the top candidates as a go. Because it's essentially go, no go, right? As they're briefing. And each Marine that gets briefed has about, I think, 40 seconds to brief that individual Marine. So they look through your shit and they're like, Go, 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 no, go, no, go. All right, boom, on to the next dude. And so that's the process I get out. Going back, trying to figure out what it was. This is what I think it was. Marine Corps is downsizing. I was on extensions. And in order to get to that board again, I had to get on two extensions. Ultimately, I think they looked at my packet and thought that I was not committed. And they're not going to promote a Marine who they think is not committed, who hadn't, because I could have re-enlisted two years ago. Yeah. And I think they kind of looked at it and they were like, we don't have space for a dude who's just like up in the air of whether he wants to stay in or not. So pass and another dude got my spot, right? Yeah. And a little bit of Jocko and ownership there too is, well, could I have been more competitive? Absolutely. And I... You know, just it is what it is. When I was a Lance Cooley in the Marine Corps in those first couple of years, I was still a knucklehead, man. I was 18, 19 years old, and I got in trouble a couple of times. And that kind of set me back. I never got demoted. All of my, the trouble I got into was company grade level. But I got not, not recommended for promotion that comes naturally with uh, what we call in the Marine Corps NJP. Chesty Puller said, you're not a real Marine until you get NJP twice. <laughs> I can check that box. But um, that's fucking great. Uh, you know, and now you're a cop. I love it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I had to, you know what? And that's another lesson because I had to explain that shit. Yeah. 
into each of my career fields, getting yeah. a secret clearance, getting, getting into MARSOC, I had to explain those circumstances of me getting in trouble, and that sucked. And that that potentially compromised my ability to get into MARSOC and be, get into law enforcement. And so it's a big like life lesson learned for me. Is like, man, you got to really be careful, especially in the military, especially when you're a young guy. Have fun, but you really got to be careful because the smallest thing in the military can get you hemmed up. Yeah. And I got in trouble really for some stupid shit. Like other guys were doing everything that I was doing. And I know I never really did anything very bad, but I was the guy that got caught. Yeah. What and, was it? Um, or just one thing. Underage drinking in Okinawa. Like, Who hello. doesn't do that? I mean, uh, yeah, that's the first thing you do when you go to Okinawa. We're all Marines, man. Yeah. And, and in, even on that one, I like was trying to do the right thing. I won't talk about the whole thing for, you know, the sake of brevity, but like, we're all out. It's very basic, you know, Liberty first night of Liberty, very first night, everybody's drinking, everybody's drunk, but we made it to the bus on time and the bus ferries you to your base. It was called Cinderella Libo Liberty. So you had to be back by, by midnight. We're good. We have plenty of time. Everything's fine. But the bus stops at each base to pick up Marines and ferried them around. And an MP from Camp Hansen jumped on the bus and he snatched my buddy up to do a random sobriety check because he knew he was underage. He was drunk, very drunk. Pulled him off the bus and kept him there and the bus kept going. And I'm like, what do I do? You know, because there was a direct order that they issued us that to stay in your Liberty group. You have to keep your libo, your libo buddy. And now my Libo buddy is at Camp Hansen and I'm headed to Camp Schwab solo and i'm like shit i mean but i'm not gonna like go rat him out or anything right so the best thing i can think of is just go back to the barracks sign back in the logbook do the right thing and go to bed and that's all i did and the first sergeant came up to the duty hut that night checking the logbook and saw that i was the only name checked in in my libo group so we got it charged for disobeying a lawful order because we broke up our liberty group but that was also alcohol related so that got tied in with underage drinking because we weren't 21 yet second going on my second combat deployment but still couldn't drink legally yeah that's wild had to explain that my whole career yeah Yeah. and i think you know because so ultimately back to promotion yeah it may be simple but i still own the fact that had i not put myself in a shitty position like that i probably would have been able to stay in the marine corps and done what i really really wanted to do and I got it, you know, it is what it is. You got to push, you know, David Goggins beyond it and just, you know, keep yeah. pushing. And, yeah. but no, I hear you. I mean, that's, that's a good, good way to look at it for sure. Um, all right. So you get forced out, you end up basically staying in that same position, but as a civilian contractor for several years teaching SEER, I know there's uh, a fair bit of anonymity that, surrounds seer school survival evasion resistance and escape for those listening that aren't aren't familiar um survival school basically pow school if you want to call it that uh if you could just share what you can about your time there and and synopsize it sure i first off i felt very fortunate to be able to get that position um really really unique school uh, course for the entire us dod not many people or mos's get to go to that that course and it has this lure to it, a lot of anonymity, like you said, a lot of secrecy to it. And you, d- you don't know anything until you get there. And then when you get there, it has this profound impact on you for the rest of your career. And so that always intrigued me. And um, having to go through it myself 
from a student perspective, I really got a lot out of that course. It, it was tough, and but but doable, and all of that stuff really just stuck with me. So whenever I got the position, I felt very fortunate, and you know even my transition out right because I got very fortunate in that aspect too. Although I got forced out, that cadre was mixed. GS personnel and contractor and active duty, all teaching. So when everything was kind of happening to me, my command was like, shit. I had actually just been nominated for a Navy comm, had been recognized by the JPRA for like outstanding instruction and for like our world there. That was a big deal. And um, so I was doing well. I mean, everything's good. I was a knucklehead as a Lance Corporal, but quite the different Marine now. But get forced out and the program manager was like, Hey man, this is shitty. If you want a spot here to teach as a, as a contractor, we've got one for you. And, and I got very lucky there. So I, I literally got out on a Friday and was back to the same position on Monday. Dude, that's amazing. In civilian clothes. Yeah. Um, can, can you, for what you can describe, can you share with the listener what your school is, sure. what it does? Yeah. Kind of like you described. So it, it's kind of like that POW school where it is designed to teach U.S. service members um, how to survive and return with honor in a situation whenever you are um, either taken prisoner, captured, or you've been put in a, a position uh, where you are you know, out alone. Maybe your plane crashes in a foreign country, and now you need to get to a friendly country. So you're evading away from an area, a denied area maybe. Um and it is to teach the service member, first and foremost, it's a big recap on the code of conduct, that thing that we all swore to when we raised our right hands at MEPS. So it reminds us of our legal and moral obligations that we have to our country in the code of conduct because we have a, an actual lawful system of how we can act in captivity. And... And then it teaches us to try not to get in that situation in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, the requisite survival skills necessary and evasion skills necessary to kind of not get there. But unfortunately, if you do get there and it's just beyond your control, okay, well, now how do you act in captivity? What are the things that we can do and we cannot do? Uh, we want to preserve important information. We don't want to give away anything that, uh, you know, could harm U.S. allied forces. And, um, and we want to, we want to maintain and preserve the integrity of, of ourselves and our mission. So big part of it's what they call returning with honor. Yeah. Um, it's extremely challenging situation to kind of be in that dynamic and be able to function because it's, you know, you're immersed within this environment of extreme stress. The most that many ever see in any military school ever. You know, you're you're pushed to a level to where you have to perform mentally and physically. Um, it's extremely demanding. You know, little to no calories, little to no sleep, and both a mixture of physical and mental stress on you at the same time. And you're still expected to be able to do the right thing, maintain your honor. You know, don't get, give away anything that's not necessary, and use the tools that are taught to you. And there's a whole tool bag you know, a whole set of, of skills that are taught to you to how to negotiate each and every one of those um, situations. And it's just very real that the that, that school has a great ability. It's probably the most realistic training, so real 
where a lot of students in in the you know the final exercise are so immersed where they they literally are lost like they're they're not in in touch with reality they think they're captured they think they're captured <clears throat> yeah it's intense man i i mean my experience was was the west coast uh you know navy program but yeah i mean by the end of it after six days of not eating anything you know especially as a 19 year old i mean i lost almost 30 fucking pounds in six days and not really sleeping and getting woken up six times in the middle of the night to get rousted out of wherever the fuck you're hiding and interrogated and, yeah, and, and <clears throat> scramble for your life what feels like i mean yeah they do a masterful job at at making it feel real and, and yeah by the end of it it's like i'm a fucking prisoner of war like like nothing is real it's weird yeah you know, like i'm curious not to interrupt but i it makes me curious um from a from a psychology standpoint is there an amount of training that instructors get purely psychologically, like where you'll have psychologists come in and teach you guys stuff? And also on the on the survival side, is is everything done in house? Do they send you guys to survival schools as well as psychology stuff, or how? Like, what's the training like? I would say really yes to all. Um, and I also kind of feel fortunate that in Sear, so sometimes as an instructor, you will specialize in survival, and that's all you teach. We have guys that teach, maybe they had a little bit more time in their career doing uh, ground movement, and so they're going to teach more invasion. And then guys who just teach resistance. I was able to teach and work in each aspect of those at the school, so I feel really fortunate for that. And, yes, I mean, like, for example, so, you know, as a student in that course, you're running from the enemy at certain, you know, areas of the course and uh there's a big emphasis on tracking so we they sent us to david scott donnellan's tracking school which is like the man who brought tracking you know footprint to footprint tracking doctrine to america and and uh, the u.s army and the u.s marine corps and was so influential that the marine corps created their own schools um based off of this guy's doctrine and his background as a like south african rhodesian Salua Scout or Rhodesian SAS, I forget. And his experience in South Africa during their uh, insurgency. Um, so, you know, got to go to a school off-site to learn that, you know, so we could teach counter-tracking and so we could also track our own students and do it real, right? Because we didn't want to game the game. When we put them through their final scenario, you know, we're not trying to, we're not, placing ourselves in a position of advantage to capture them. We're, we are trying to mimic the, the actual environment. So we're doing it for real. We're tracking our students for real. And if we catch them, it's because we, you know, we caught, we caught them. And of course everybody gets rolled up. You got to go through that portion of the, of the training. Um, and that kind of gets into the captivity part and the, in a big part of the psychology. And um, we, yeah, every schoolhouse has psychologists on site. The oversight for all of that, because of, the unique nature of the course is actually way more than what most would probably think. Yeah. And what any of the students are actually aware of. And, and way more than what the students are aware of, but there's always, there's extreme safety measures um, at every aspect of that. And we are trained in particular ways to detect things when we know things are not going right and to be able to intervene appropriately to keep the scenario running and, and also to, make sure that the student is, is getting uh, the training value 
that they're supposed to. And that's a big part of it also that is hard because in a sense, as, as an instructor, you're in that position, you're kind of an actor. Yeah. You know, and we have a particular role that we need to play to present this situation to these students so they understand what's happening to them. Because it's there's no, like, admin time. You know, it's fluid. And so, like, you would have to present them with a situation and almost, in a sense, enroll, reference their training so they can remember, oh, yeah, yeah. I know what's going on right now. I was trained in that technique and let me use that. And um, so being able to facilitate that as an instructor um, was tough, but it was very rewarding, you know, at the, at the end, but a lot of control measures, a lot of safety measures and a consistent psychologist present. Yeah. Can you speak to the, from the acting standpoint, um, kind of the, the vibe or, uh, the look that you guys are going for now as instructors, like what, what environment it's, it's mimicking culturally military. Actually cause a great question because traditionally that course was POW related. Yeah. I mean, for like when I went through, this was in the late nineties, it was still very Russian, mm-hmm. uh, Vietnam, you know, esque in, in terms of the, the influence and in, in terms of how the instructors, their accents, their, their uniforms, the, the culture, if you will, of, of the enemy was, was very old school, and, be, and because that is still certainly a possibility for a U.S. member, uh, service member to be in captivity in a situation like that with like a, a nation state and a traditional conventional type of uh, campaign or war, that is that realm is still certainly covered. But as you can imagine, as time has, has progressed and our adversary has gotten a little bit more unconventional, a little bit more asymmetric, so has that training yeah i can just say that it certainly has evolved yeah to make sure that we are prepared for any of the other potential environments that we may find ourselves in yeah i can only assume or i would hope that there's been some updating in terms of the likelihood of if you do get captured in in a lot of especially at the height of when you were an instructor there like the chances of them hanging on to you are far slimmer than they were against the nation state where your, your presence actually holds value. Whereas now it's like, we're just going to fucking torture you to death and you can go fuck yourself. I mean, do you speak to that in the training? A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I know there's only so much you can share, but, um, to me, that was the most, um, sobering fucking element of, of that, that enemy in particular, in terms of the psychology behind facing them is knowing that like, yeah, they've got a, pr- a particular protocol. Yeah, they've got a particular way that they operate, and we all know it. You know, yeah. we've all seen the videos, and then uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, we adjust accordingly. Yeah. Um, is is there anything you can share story wise from your time there of like total wild card freakouts, uh, student wise, or really anything interesting that you can share that people would be like, "Holy fuck, really? That happened." Of course, this gets to the point where, you know, you got to be careful, but actually sure. I'll give you an, a, what I think is a great example. Because again, like I said, right, so we're trying to create this environment with both mental and physical stress. And surprisingly, and this, you know, <laughs> services joke with each other, units joke with each other, like we always messed with the Marines from Camp Lejeune and we're like, Camp Lejeune's flat, man. Y'all don't know how to hike. You know, like, that that's easy stuff. We're in the mountains of 29 Palms in the sand. 
you know, uh, so we're harder, right? Well, let me tell you, there's one thing in particular about the Camp Lejeune area that is, it makes for a very challenging uh, environment. And that's like, they call it the Pocosin. It's like very thick underbrush. You know, it's a coastal region. So you're right there by, you know, the Atlantic Ocean. And the vegetation is just ridiculously thick. Briars and brambles. And there's some areas in the area, in our training environment there, where just the just the vegetation and the environment would stress people out because you may be in an area where you're moving a hundred meters for two hours, maybe, Yeah, you know, you're literally crawling and you're getting tangled up and you're it, that's taxing. You get a ruck on, you're stepping over big logs and stuff like that. Your legs get tired. You're just not making any ground and you got people chasing after you. So that environment in itself would make people lose their shit like actually lose their shit, scream, come out of roll, just so sick and tired of it. And, uh, and that's where we would be able to be in a position to remind them that you have to remember, can you do, could you do that right now in, in some foreign country where you're trying to get away? What have you just done, right? Compromise your entire team and kind of bring them back to reality Remember and remind them of the training and realign them. And that's the part of it. So there is a bit of coaching there. You know what I mean? There's some, um, you know, because you, ultimately, you know, we can't let them fail. They have to go away from this course with the requisite knowledge to do the right thing no matter what, period. And so unless, you know, you're tapping because you just can't take it anymore, like, like I literally voluntarily dropping out then you know we're going to get you through it and uh but but that environment even just the movement outside of captivity is extremely challenging and it would break people so that was surprising you know because you're not even in captivity yet yeah so captivity wise did you ever have any students that uh like if you made physical contact with them that they swung back at you or anything like that did you ever have that or see that happen no Fortunately not. No, no student. And I think that comes to the, you know, the control and, and, and prepping them accordingly. Um, but there was never a, a time where I remember that ever happening to me yeah. or any of our cadre. Yeah. Anything stand out captivity wise stories that you can share that were <laughs> certainly stories, nothing I, nothing I would be able to share. About. Yeah. Being in the military for 12 plus years and even a few years prior to joining, uh, I was a dipper. I, uh, Enjoyed all different all different types of brands of chewing tobacco, and it was a, a real nasty habit that uh, I developed and, and maintained even years after I, I left the military. I want to talk to you about Black Buffalo, which is a tobacco alternative uh, that works fantastic for uh, you know stopping the harmful uh, chewing tobacco habit that uh, so many people have. Uh, the products are intended for adults 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Um, and you know, what's interesting and, and pretty remarkable about this product is you wouldn't know that it's not the, the real thing. You know, the, the taste, uh, you know, it's edible green leaves, it's food grade ingredients. There's no tobacco leaf or stems, but it's the same texture. It's the same flavor. It's the same even burn that, uh, that you get and want. Uh, they have wintergreen, mint, straight peach, and blood orange. 
they have pouches and long cut um, you know, and, and if you are a, a uh, chewing tobacco connoisseur uh, and you're looking to, to kick that habit, they, uh, they make a phenomenal product, and now they also have nicotine-free versions. So you can get the nicotine that, that uh, you desire from it without the tobacco, or you can even get nicotine-free if you just want the ritual and, and the habit of, of doing it. Uh, again, that's Black Buffalo, and uh, it's a phenomenal product that uh, works really, really well. Warning. This product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Um, from a survival standpoint, what, uh, and I know it, it depends on what you have, what you're wearing, the weather, the climate, terrain, but to, can you oversimplify it or simplify it, not oversimplify it, to where it's like, here's the top three things oh, gen- yeah. generically like Absolutely. in a survival Absolutely. That became a very apparent really quick. Whenever I became an instructor, I t- spent the majority of my time in survival, survival and invasion. Number one is fire, period. Fire boils my water so I can drink. I have to have that. Cooks my food so I can eat. Got to have that. And I don't even mean like, yeah, I can cook. I can roast small game over a fire, but I can, I can boil it, Right. And I can, I can take in the nutrients from the broth that that's creates and get more nutrients from eating food that way in a survival situation. So fire, it, it allows me to, to stay hydrated. It gives me sustenance and allows me to eat without getting poisoned or something. It, um, it fins away predators. It gets bugs away. It keeps me warm in a, in a time where I could uh, die of hypothermia. So first and foremost for me is I didn't really understand the importance of fire. So for me, like survival priorities is always fire is always at the top for me. You know, I got to be able to have a, a, a way to a means of making fire and I got to be able to have that means of, of cooking. So a really underrated survival item in my opinion is like a pot or a canteen cup. Otherwise you're roasting food and you're losing nutrients. And in that situation, we're trying to make you the, the most optimal in a, unoptimal if that's even a word situation yeah suboptimal situation so you know you got to have that canteen cup or or pot to cook in so you can make a broth like that with water boil it cook the food and take take your food that way so you can get the most nutrients possible um so fire super important a lot of reasons I'll, i'll move on to another thing of like trapping small game is tough even if you're experienced it's tough, especially if you're in a foreign environment where you're not even familiar with small game and how, you know, so as you're trying to procure, procure food along the way, um, the most bang for your buck is fishing. Um, most nutritious, cleanest protein, um, and easier, much easier than like snaring a squirrel or something like that, you know, is, is no, should you, if you have the means to, should you set out some traps and snares and then also fish, you know, absolutely. But, um, you know, focusing your time and energy wisely in that type of situation is super important. So kind of just go for the big bang, you know, have the best bang for your buck. Uh, if you have a water source and you can fish, of course, that would be the, the preferred way to gain sustenance. Um, and then purifying water, right? Uh, already talked about the boiling aspect, but, you know, the basic concept of just creating a solar still, um, and being able to procure water any and every single way that you can. Again, the importance of just simply having a container. 
that's really important. Um, and then, and, I, and I, to put a bit of emphasis on that real quick, because you see it in like these shows, Naked and Afraid, right? These people will be in this environment and they'll see like a running stream and they're like, we're in the mountains. It's all good. It's running fast. It's fine. And it seems like nine times out of 10, when that person decides to take that gamble and take that drink of water, two hours later, he's shitting his brains out or he's just in terrible, terrible pain, right? Um, just be, even, even if you're in a, even in the U.S., you're in a natural environment. I did a, bridge, a Bridgeport package up in the mountains in the Marine Corps. And they specifically told us, you're in the mountains, it's spring water, it's fresh. Do not drink it. You will get sick. You must purify the water first. So the importance of that, and not only that, but like when you purify your water, whatever way you do it, there's a lot, right? Big, easy go-to for us was just uh, iodine tablets. Easy, two tablets in a quart, shake it for 30 minutes, you're good to go. In really any environment, you're good to go. Very easy to pack. Doesn't weigh a lot. Um, but one thing that like people won't do is they'll shake. Uh, you're shaking it up, right? You go to take the cap off, and there's residual water and water droplets around the cap and the threads of the cap that wasn't in there getting purified. That's still water from like the stream or the creek or wherever you procured procured it from. And people forget that even just the smallest water droplet can contain a bajillion microscopic cryptosporidia or gerardia, which can be a showstopper in a situation where you've got little to no calories in you. You've been, you know, out there flapping for days and now you're shitting your brains out and you're extremely dehydrated. That little water droplet could have been your showstopper. So the importance of doing it right, like don't underestimate water. You must make sure that you clean it. And so what we would do is just, unscrew it a little bit and shake it and let the, some of that water flush out that residual water around the uh, the threads that's it nothing crazy and just make sure you're taking that extra step to make sure that i'm not taking any gambles yeah. because that stuff's all microscopic like it doesn't take a lot to make you really sick yeah so the importance of being able to procure um purified water big big deal so and, and knowing the different methods and may uh, so you can improvise you know chlorine works you don't need uh iodine if you don't have iodine you know you can use chlorine you just you know you know the solution and you make sure that it's extremely diluted and it can be very effective um or just boil it and, well is it a slight boil or is it a roaring boil knowing that you know and well if, if i'm going up in elevation should i boil it a little little bit longer you should, you know, um, and and so those there's some rules and guidelines there. But again, it's like in a real survival situation, you know, like in a real survival situation. Do you want to take that gamble, right? Like take that extra measure. If I'm going up a thousand feet in elevation, I'm boiling the water a minute longer. That may be some old science folklore. We don't know, right? Uh, I'm not a scientist, but that's what's in the manual, and that makes sense to me. You know, that's smart. That's being prudent in a really dangerous situation. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Um, of all the uh, alone and naked and afraid and survival, you know, all, all of those shows, is there one that stands out to you as being like, do you, do you watch any of them? Do you think they're fucking dumb? I, I think they're, you know, they're all passing time. They're plenty entertaining, you know, yeah. kind of watch the, the decisions that people make, you know. Yeah. Or the, 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 the decisions they make on, like, what tools that they're going to use. Um but no, 
I really don't. I don't really watch them. And uh, you got enough shit to worry about. Yeah, I mean, like I said, they're they're, they're entertaining, but I yeah. mean, I. Yeah, no, I'm tracking. Uh, fascinating shit there for sure. Um, so you you do that for about five years, um, and then you decide you're going to pull chalks and come back to Texas and uh, and become a Texas state trooper. Walk us through that uh, decision making process and journey. Yeah. So a big, there was a void whenever I left, even though I was still teaching in SEER and I still felt like I had a purpose, right? Like I've, I'm teaching service members this valuable skill set. I, I still had that sense of service. I'm not operating on the team. I missed it. I missed the action. I missed that dynamic um, and, and being of service. And, you know, a lot likely pathway for service members, especially infantry guys and Special ops guys, when they get out, is the law enforcement world has some buddies in law enforcement, and I was kind of like talking with them, and and I got influenced by one in particular, my good buddy who's in the in the Houston area, and he got on, did his time, you know, in in uniform, and got into a specialized unit, and and I'm talking to him, and I'm like, shit, man, I mean, he's working in a major metropolitan area, he's operating more than some soft units in America, and I thought, well, that's kind of cool to be able to, if you could operate in your own community. And have an effect on your community. Maybe leverage the special skill sets that you learned in your your military time. Take those into a law enforcement capacity and have an effect on your own community. And kind of certainly kind of rid that area of evil as best as possible. Even on that individual level. How cool would that be? Yeah. So th- that was kind of like my thought process. I'm, I'm originally from Texas. I, I uh, had been gone since 02. So I missed Texas. Um, right. Nothing like H E B man. So, uh, uh, especially in North Carolina, but, um, my folks are getting older as well, you know, and, and I, I, I just wanted to be closer to family, closer to home. Um, and we didn't mind North Carolina. We had a nice spot on the water, close to the water. You know, we, my wife and I would frequently go out, uh, you know, paddle boarding, canoeing out in the ocean, fishing a lot. And we really had a lot of fun out there, but, I just kind of felt that it was time to get back home because there was always that feeling of it's Texas is like still my home. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm like, this is a good time. DPS was starting to increase their, their recruiting efforts to combat all the stuff going on the border. And so then I'll be honest, there was a sense of me there where I could say, well, I can now also have an effect on the security of my entire state. Go have some time to work on the border, see what that's all about and play my part, do my, do my duty, and continue in service. I, I, still, I wanted to get back to a career of service, uh, like being more of like a pu- public service. And again, with the influence of my buddy working in, you know, in the, the police department that he was working in, all of this stuff that he was doing, uh, and the different options that you can do in a big department, all the specialized different units, I was like, that's what I'm doing. And so moved back to Texas, sold everything in North Carolina, um, went through our academy, and um, got stationed down in the border and got my fair share of working in a uniformed patrol capacity on the southern Texas border. Is there anything that would surprise the average listener, whether they're in Texas or not, just with the border being such a hotbed topic politically over the last decade, really, um, 
that you experienced down there that would surprise people? Absolutely. I think as a matter of fact, it would really surprise people that this is maybe one of the rare circumstances where the issue or the topic is not overblown by the media, where usually they overdramatize whatever issue or topic, right? Well, certain medias. I mean, some it's under underreported, I think. And and in particular, what I mean for the border is, especially in Texas, is the severity of the problems. Or this is probably one of those issues where it's not even getting the, the coverage and painting the picture the way that it actually is. Un- unfortunately, because, and I mean that for like the worst. It's worse than most people think. I think, from my experiences down there, um, because I took an interest in all that. So I wasn't just kind of like going through the motions doing my thing down there. Uh, I was looking into our entire effort, right? And kind of analyzing that and and trying to get a, a good full picture on the totality of everything that they're faced with down there and the dynamic, the culture aspect of it, um, which plays a big role into like the cartels and, and, uh, and the youth down there in particular. And, and just point blank, way more gets by than what most people know of. And so what catches the news, what, what usually catches the news is what's, what's been caught, but we're not catching 50% of what comes across the border. I don't think, I think some people would probably say it's more than that. It gets by, right? Because the deal is, is there's only so many of us in border patrol, right? And of course, border patrol for the past few years have just been completely tied up in admin stuff where they haven't even really been able to enforce and do really what they're supposed to be doing, which is preventing, deterring and apprehending where they've just been forced in processing. And so it's really been all left, uh, you know, on other law enforcement agencies to combat that. And, um, and we're, we do our best of course, but, um, they are the, the cartel who really have a hold on that border are so good at what they do. And they're, they are so able to evolve their TTPs that there's just a lot that gets by, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's very, very tough. So your experience there, I know you got to be a little careful about what you can say, but um, as a Texas DPS, a state trooper, did you spend most of that first four years down there? Or like what, what was your career path and, and what was your position? Sure. Yeah, so basically a, at that time, it was actually a year, um, and worked kind of all along the southern border in that year. I had an area where I kind of stuck to, but worked all over the state down there. And uh, as a state trooper in that uniformed presence, cowboy hat. And uh, and then after that, you're you're able to transfer. So okay, it's time to get the wife back to back to Central Texas, do closer all, to home. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's what do all DPS troopers spend their first year down at the border? It's at that time the majority of us were because okay. kind of like the way it works with, with our agency is that first year is kind of on the state. You have a choice, but at some point there's needs of the state all over and they got to be met and filled. 
Now, the focus at that time was the border, still is pretty much now, but, um, and I was okay with that because that's where I kind of wanted to, I wanted to go get, I wanted to go mix it up. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go see how, how bad it really was and, and try to have a positive impact down there. So spent a year down there and, um, I was able to transfer back after that. I was like, okay, check. Got a good taste of that. Now it's, and I also wanted to move on and promote and, and try to get into some different, different types of law enforcement roles. So I knew I could do that from a better position up home. Yeah. You know, we're, you know, the DPS is headquartered in the Austin area. So I was able to, you know, kind of get back to that area. I did work highway patrol in, uh, which is, you know, Texas DPS state trooper highway patrol in the Austin area for a while. Um, and got to work with a lot of different organizations, a lot of different law enforcement organizations being a state cop, you know, you kind of get exposure to, and you get to see, uh, how a lot of different agencies work. And um, so that kind of helped influence me on where I wanted to take my career. And um, and that was out of uniform into a specialized unit. And um, I was fortunate, fortunate enough to be able to, you know, do the right things, get myself in that position, unfortunately, in, in a specialized unit now that, you know, I'm not really going to talk about too much. Um, and, and I would maybe even bring attention to the fact that, you know, the nowadays in law enforcement is different than it used to be. And there's a lot of law enforcement officers out there who are taking a greater degree of security um, because of just the, the flow of information, how easy it is to, to um, find out very basic stuff, you know. Um, and so now that I'm in this role and I've worked myself into a, a, a good position, you know, I'd, I'd take that security very seriously. Um, so that's where I'm at now, though. Still there. I'm a special agent. Yeah. Uh, if we can take a couple steps back. When you when you were down on the border, when you say I was working the border, what does that consist of? Like, what is your job down there as a trooper? Oh, man, great question. Because in my opinion, that was a great place to start. Because as a state cop, you know, you get to do, or at least down there, they really want you to do all, everything. And so, you know, traditionally with highway patrols and state police organizations, their role are kind of like on the highways. You know, you're enforcing traffic laws and state law along the highways, and you're you're um, and that by doing that, like your presence out on those major highways, especially like the big highways like I-35 that you know stress almost right the entire country, um, you're maintaining the safety there, so it produ- uh, reduces crashes. There's also a big part of like uh, highway patrols, traditional um, missions of like state police and highway patrols are uh, interdiction. So um, looking for drug loads and looking for cash loads. Um, So for example, being that that is all very prevalent down there, um, I could do a lot of work down there as a cop. Um, If I wanted to focus on interdiction and I, you know, don't want to give away too much of like how we enforce because right. If I, if I, you know, talk in particular details, then I'm kind of, you know, anybody can listen yeah. to this and any, they don't want to give hear away how we, how we do our thing. Right. So I want to preserve that. But I mean, if I wanted to look for dope, then I'm going to go to areas where I know I can look for dope and get it. If I want to look for cash, uh, cash loads, which are a lot of people don't realize and think about, but I mean, the cash has to get back down there, you know, from the profits that they make inland and all throughout the country. 
And one way is, you know, is loading it up and concealing it within a vehicle. And so trying to get good with interdiction. But another big part of that interdiction that is also not talked about very much and very underrated and, and essentially what I would even say is more important than, than both of those is the, what we call IPC or the inter, interdiction for the protection of children. So it's looking for kidnapped kids, you know, people who are being human trafficked and smuggled where I can initiate a traffic stop and, you know, look for those clues and indicators of a person who's maybe being exploited yeah. or a person who's maybe even been captured against their will. Did you run into that? Um, human trafficking quite a bit. So, I mean, like, were there times where you'd make a traffic stop and be like, holy shit, like you were surprised at what was going on? In, in I'll give you, I'll give you a, a direct example. It plays into, and this is, I mean, this is an everyday occurrence. Um, something, I don't know if you remembered it or not, but probably 2008, no, it was probably 2017, made, made headline news. There was a, a truck tractor semi-trailer that had stopped at like a Walmart. I think it was a Walmart park lot in San Antonio. There was like 20 migrants that died and in the back because it was just too hot, right? Um, there was a few that had managed to get the doors open and escape. That driver was probably waiting for uh, whatever, the next leg of that criminal enterprise to take over. I'm not sure. So I'm reading the headlines, right? And that's a big part from the where the commercial motor vehicle traffic where I was at was very high. So I took note to that, right? And they, they had a picture of the truck in the, in the news. And I looked at it and it keyed off to me. And I'm like, wow, that looks like very familiar. And I, I, I recollected a particular moment. And I thought, no way. Like, what are the chances, right? I don't know where even where that truck originated from. Now, that truck, though, had some particular criteria that sticks out for the, in particular, for like an interdiction value. So I, I saw that and I took note of it, but it was not driving. At the time, it was legally parked at a truck stop. And so normally, maybe if the truck was driving, it had some clues, right? And I'd be, I would try to, in, investigate a bit further, right? And if there's a violation there, or if he if he breaks a, a traffic law, then I can initiate a traffic stop, and I've got an investigation going on at that point, right? And so I see this truck, and and I pass it by. I mean, there's not it's legally parked. Nothing I can do. It just it just keyed off, you know. And they showed a picture of that truck, and it, that was the truck. And I'm like, no way. But I, and I even was like, nah, I mean, no way, couldn't be. Next day, they released the booking photo of that of the driver, and and I remember distinctly looking up at the cab of that truck as I drove by it, and I saw the driver, and that was him. And so I just kind of makes me think, shit. I mean, I hate that about how the world works because I wish I could have stopped that truck and potentially saved a whole bunch of lives. Yeah, I had that happen. I'll, I'll give you another story about one of those we did actually were able to stop and interdict and potentially save save some people um we had a, a particular stop where it was a truck tractor semi-trailer and um long story short um multiple violations on the vehicle many clues and indicators 
of uh, that that gave us the impression that he may be concealing something, some sort of contraband. That then kind of gives us the ability to, once we are able to kind of see all those clues, right, that reasonable suspicion, right, that gives us a little bit more grounds to just simply ask, hey, can we have consent to search this vehicle? And a lot of people do it, and that's fine. That's totally, they could say no, and we would say okay. And, but he did. He gave his consent. And so we, we popped the back hatches of the trailer, and it is professionally palletized U-Haul blankets, like it's business, right? Like he's moving freight. Looks completely legit. From the bottom, though, to the top, you couldn't see anything. It was packed in there so perfectly and tight and professionally looking. You couldn't see anything past beyond a couple inches. One of the uh, troopers I was with, though, was exceptionally good at all this. And he was like, there's, there's something in here. Like every, all of these things, all of these clues and indicators, this is not right. And so we have the ability to x-ray truckloads at you know, we have that capability, some of these locations down there. So we actually put the truck through an x-ray, and there was like nine Guatemalans wow. stuck in the back in very tight, close confinement. And um, so we immediately arrest the driver, put him in custody, and we open up the back hatches, and we start frantically trying to pallet jack all of these pallets to get to these people because we just see them on x-ray. Mm-hmm. I can't even know if they're and alive. they're they are even some of them they're floating above the 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 floor so they're like wedged Jesus up into there and we don't know if they're dead or alive or anything right so we take pallet jack and we're we're trying to get all this this out of the way and there they are we end up seeing them and we get them off and uh, of course they're you know how they got in that position was that voluntary did they want to do that you know we don't know it's very hard to tell that that uh, at that moment. Um, and so that's another challenge of the border is were they trafficked? They may, that may have been voluntary for you guys at that point. Do you turn them over to border patrol? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So turn them and over to border patrol, like any any other exactly. situation that was that presents itself that way. Um, was it, in terms of the the drugs and uh, and cash? Were there ever is there a biggest haul that you personally uh, came across? Yeah, absolutely. A friend of mine got a twenty million dollars worth of fentanyl. Holy shit! Here in Texas. Yeah. Um, I saw um, multi-million dollar drug loads frequently. Yeah. Um, in in concealment locations in vehicles that you would just never imagine. You could be like, yeah, the, the creativity and the ingenuity is unreal. Yeah. It's unreal. Um, it's very very hard to find this stuff. Um, but. Yeah, I saw multi-million dollar co uh, cocaine loads, uh, multi-million dollar liquid meth uh, loads, and multi-million dollar cash stash loads, and and also like stash houses wow. where they're st where they're holding and stashing people. Yeah, um, saw that as well. For the, uh, I mean, I'm assuming the drugs get destroyed. Mm -hmm. What do you guys do with the cash? Oh, uh, great question. I mean, does um, it go into the, in, into well, DPS's? Well, it's, it, for, I think first and foremost, it's evidence. So it, depending on what happens with the case, you know, um, it, there's a period of time where it has to be held. And um, I know some like local police departments and like even constables offices, they do have a legal way of being able to convert that money and use it. I have never seen that in, in DPS. So I actually, I don't know. Huh. 
I mean, it seems like there's a significant amount of, we'll call it working capital, you know, that's <laughs> right. that's seized by yeah. law enforcement. Um, yeah, I'm curious as what the fuck they do with it. Um, yeah, that's fascinating shit. All right, so the year that you spent down there, it's kind of all-encompassing, and, and you learn a ton, you're paying your dues and, and putting your time in. You go back up to the Austin area and, and do the more traditional highway right. stuff. Any uh, crazy stories from your time there? Like high speed chases, fucking like what? What was that? Absolutely, like? yeah. Um, and what one thing that was surprising to me was a lot of what we saw down there is present here. Yeah, and a lot of it doesn't get covered, you know. But I mean, uh, the cartels' influence is beyond the border. Yeah, I'll just put it that way. You know, it's well beyond the border. Sure. And um, and one thing that I saw in particular that was crazy that's consistent with down there and further in is a majority of the people that are doing this stuff, you see the videos of, like, these crazy police chases, and I've been in one. I'll, I'll describe one down there. It was – I could not believe what had happened. Um, but a trooper, for example, saw a good vehicle that had interdiction value. Again, the troopers down south are very good at being able to, to spot things like that. So you, you, you go up and you get um, close to it. You start driving next to it, and you're continuing to investigate. And another vehicle that was not even, he was not even paying attention to it, came in and cut him off and started trying to run him off the road. The trooper? This is the a no, the trooper. This is a uniformed black and white highway patrol car trying to run him off the road. And so that, of course, it, he does his mission, and he does create a gap, and that that initial vehicle does, in fact, get away, unfortunately. We're just up the road, but we're hearing it on the radio, so we flip around and head south to link up with him as fast as possible because now his attention is going to be on that vehicle. Now we want to arrest them, So, but they're running. So, and I'm talking very dangerous speeds, right? Fortunately, we have a high degree of training and, and driving and all that. And, um, and you get through your experience down there, you know, you just get more and more experience with that. So are those schools in house or do they send, mm -hmm. they send it all yeah. in house, training. all in house. And, and so we're chasing after them. And this goes from outside the city limits out in, you know, rural areas of the highway all the way in town. They stop, they bail, they go out on foot. Now we're in a foot pursuit and we end up getting them and they're kids. They're 14 years old. Holy shit. And they have, they're stone cold. Like, can you imagine a regular average 14-year-old who's just committed a major crime, right? That type of crime, as a matter of fact, was good enough to get them a deadly conduct charge, which is, you know, just shy of, like, manslaughter and murder. And um, and they, they, they could care less. They could care less. We put them in custody, took them to juvie. American and citizens or no? Not? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were American citizens. Wow. But that you know became apparent to me after that that a lot of the 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 crime that's occurring down there. So these cartels are influencing these young kids, and they are the ones that are conducting it. And then I kind of found a gap of criminals. There's I didn't see very many like twenty two to thirty two year olds. They're either super young or super old. Yeah, because they're, they're either old, because they they have a few years. Where they're being a crook, they get it rolled up eventually. They go to jail for ten years, and they're off the street. Wow! Next thing you know, you're seeing guys in their in their you know mid to late forties, 
Um, but there's always, there was always kind of that gap and the majority of the people doing that crime was, was kids yeah. and uh, young kids, you know, teenagers. Wow. Uh, all your time on the street as a DPS guy, <clears throat> did you ever go have to go hands-on with somebody where, where like they're legit fighting you back? Yeah. Yeah. In the brush, like, you know, these, some of these, um, you know, we would, we have an ability to gain awareness if, you know, they're crossing certain areas. So, you know, we would team up with board patrol, chase after them and they're They resist. Absolutely. Uh, whenever you, uh, put hands on them and you're trying to affect an arrest, you know, they're kind of swinging at you and they're, they're trying to get away. They're kicking at you. Um, foot pursuit. Um, another, uh, pursuit that went from from a vehicle to foot um that kind of ended we spiked him car wrecks out he's got migrants in the back so illegals in the back and he's he's like their smuggler um and he runs on foot and tries to blend into a neighborhood we end up getting him uh, i end up putting him in custody and he ends up trying to fight me luckily he's my size no big deal um and but yeah i mean that that's a common that's a common occurrence. Now they're, I mean, I've just seen stuff recently. They're coming across with, with weapons and ARs and, um, they, uh, they'll do whatever it takes. Yeah. They'll do whatever it takes to get away because it's money to them or it's their freedom, right? They're, they're from Salvador or Honduras or whatever. And they're just doing whatever it takes to, to get into this, this promise that they've, they've been, you know, promised this, the greatness of America and and then the smugglers will do everything they can to make them and to get them across because that's that's their livelihood. Yeah, it's a terrible cycle. Yeah, um, training wise for you guys, academy and follow on as far as combatives, how significant is it? Like, do they do you spend a lot of time? And is it catch wrestling, jujitsu, uh, prisoner handling? I mean, what kind of stuff are you guys working on? Yeah, kind of bit of a. a bit of everything nowadays um and the and there is uh means of which that police officers can can sustain those skill sets so we do like an open mat you know type of deal where if you got time off just hit the gym there's an open mat area and there's a lot of guys that, that do bjj and um and uh help teach other people and it's just c completely informal yeah um but in the academy of course we get combatives um, arrest and control tactics where you're learning how to put somebody in custody and they start fighting you and resisting you and you gotta, you gotta hold your own and they, they, you know, you get tested. You certainly do get tested in the academy. And, um, and so you're using the techniques that they taught you, the takedowns, very kind of straightforward stuff. Um, back in the day, as a matter of fact, they used to focus more on boxing, um, before a lot of the, uh, border stuff had happened. Um, so there's still an element of that, you know, striking. Um, and that's an, on an everyday basis, too. I mean, that's a part of they where they, they integrate that in with PT. So I like that. I yeah. thought that was good, kind of integrating that to where you're you're getting into that situation, but with your heart heart rate elevated. Yeah. And um, same thing for the range. I've seen it in, in like, follow-on training where there's some follow-on training and marksmanship-focused courses where they are incorporating that, which – I think is absolutely necessary. You know, you need to be able to handle yourself um, in that type of situation, you know, with your heart rate jack. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's good to hear that they incorporate that into kind of the daily program. How long is the Academy? Six months. Six months. And is it down in Austin? Mm -hmm. yeah. Live in Academy. So yeah, 
24 seven. Yeah, pretty much. You get you get a, you do get weekends off. Oh, okay. But I mean, for the most part, you're there because I mean, guys that are there from West Texas are yeah. not going home and they'll be against too far. Yeah. You know, so a lot of them. Fortunately for me, I yeah I was just around the corner for the house. So. Yeah, that's wild. Was that a, an adjustment going from? The amount of time you spent in the military and into the heights at which you were at to going back to being like a fucking new guy spanker in the academy having mm-hmm. to live in a barracks and all that was that a, a bit of a humble pie yeah it was and i knew it you know i knew it going into it because how old were you when you went through it 32 maybe yeah when i went through um and so and and as a matter of fact another marsoc raider who worked with me at sear got out like I did, he was actually contracting at Sear with me. Came up from the same unit as I did. Also from Texas. And we buddy teamed it, man. And he came down and we did it together. And he he went through the academy as well. However, after he got stationed and kind of went through the process, he just he couldn't take it. That, yeah. that coming from like, and I almost think that my perspective from that environment to more of just a much more conventional type of organization is it's tough for me to manage that because um, I'm always like push the limit you know we can do this we can train to this standard or you know and uh, just everybody's not wired that way in in regular law enforcement and, and I get it I'm okay with it you know you just got to be able to adapt and just do your best and that's what I try to do um, but there was certainly an element of like uh, okay yeah I'm low man on the totem pole again and I got to uh, prove myself pass all these standards, prove myself as a good trooper. If I'm going to be able to do anything and get, get to these specialized units, then I, you know, I got to do that. So it is what it is. Um, it was interesting, you know, yeah. was there not preferential treatment, but was there a kind of the unspoken professional, like nod of respect from the, from the cadre of knowing what your background was? I mean, was, was there any credence given to that? Not really. Not, they didn't give a fuck. Not really. Yeah. Were any of the instructors younger than you? A few. Yeah. A few. Yeah. And like my, when I got, like my first FTO was younger than me. Um, are, are the, I mean, is the, is the instructor cadre in the academy, are they drill instructor dick like, or are they more professional and gentlemen's course kind of thing? It's more paramilitary style. Really? So yeah, they are. Fucking hard asses and. In your shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like insulting you and shit or what? Uh, I mean, they got to be careful with that, of course, because it ain't the Marine Corps. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, yeah, they're in your shit, and they try to create that environment of intensity and stress because, you know, also with the Highway Patrol, the idea and the, the culture is kind of like, dude, you're on your own. You're in West Texas Rural Highway. There's no PD to back you up. Yeah. You got to be able to handle yourself on the side of the road completely by yourself. Backup's not coming. Yeah. And so it's a, it, there's a... a a level of intensity there where they, they try to kind of maintain that throughout the entire academy. Um, it was not nearly anything as like intense as Marine Corps boot camp. Sure. Um, what was any of it? Did any of it surprise you as being like, fuck, that was tougher than I thought it would be. No, no. Yeah. Um, if, if you were to prioritize or can you prioritize Texas DPS's priorities, like the top five things, like what are they, What's number one on their list? What are the what are the top five things on their list of what they're fucking worried about and trying to combat? Yeah, definitely the border is still a um, top priority. Um, you know, there's waves of troopers from all over the state that go down there on a 
routine basis. I mean, there's all over the country going there now. And right? now we have supporting states that are yeah. um, sending down assets to to assist as well. So that is, of course, out there as the, the number one priority. But the, uh, certainly there's still the priority of being able to have a presence on the highways in all the other parts of Texas so we can maintain our original mission of maintaining um, you know, a safe passageway for motorists and to continue enforcing state laws out on the highways um, in Texas, because, you know, the, the less that we're out there, right. And, you know, people can talk crap about cops and stopping people and giving tickets and everything, you know, whatever. I mean, that that's just going to happen. Um, but, you know, from my perspective and knowing how effective it is, you know, when you, when you have us out there, you know, one of the biggest priorities for DPS is crash investigation. And I think a lot of people don't also realize that where we, we are the premier agency with crash reconstruction and crash uh, crash investigation. So, for example, your mom or sister-in-law gets hit by a drunk driver and dies. Well, it's on us to make sure that we investigate that crash. And that, mind you, that may be two hours after the fact. I got to get on scene, look at all the elements of the circumstances, look at the crime scene, now that it's a crime scene, the crash how it happened, calculate speed. We go to specialized crash reconstruction courses where we have pages and pages and pages of math. And I'm not even joking where we are trying to figure out the speed at which a vehicle is stopped or collided or even vaulted and flipped to try to figure out exactly what happened and reconstruct this thing. So we can understand who did what, who, where were the roles? What was the, um, the contributing factor that, led to these events and that way we can investigate that fully present the present the facts in the best way possible so if that person needs to be charged with with intoxication manslaughter and go to prison they do because they just killed a family uh, of people maybe because they were drunk yeah so that's a big priority that is will always remain in dps that every trooper is kind of always specializes in is the ability to you know investigate a crash properly yeah um and beyond that, um, also, it, you know, we are, I will say that, you know, as the increase in active shooter events has c- continued and school shootings maybe in particular, one thing that DPS has kind of um, focused on is um, assisting um, ISD, PDs, or even schools that don't have a police presence in that unfortunate situation in putting our presence there. So as a state cop, you know, when I'm on patrol, I really have the ability to kind of focus on the areas where I I know and want to focus on. That may be highway enforcement. That may be helping and supporting the county. That very well also may be um, making my presence known and spending some time at a school and having my the deterrent of my unit and that that vehicle there, so people see and they they see that this this place has a security presence. Yeah. So that's an, that has been another priority. Jurisdiction-wise, how how do you guys organize yourselves? Like, does it just totally depend on where you're at? Like, what what size area are you responsible for? Do, is there a limit? I mean, since you're a state cop, I mean, go anywhere. I mean, what? Yeah, in the sense, there's no limits where like I can I can enforce state laws anywhere in the state. Certainly, um, let's say for example, I'm I'm in Austin, but I'm traveling down to the border to go work and work a border rotation. If I'm in San Antonio and I see something, I can certainly take action in, in, in enforcement action. Um, the way that it works, kind of like how we're geographically aligned, is um, 
based on the area and depending on the, the needs and how big that area is and how big the DPS presence is in that area. Where down south, uh, my AO essentially was, man, it was vast. Um, six different counties probably I could have worked in at any given time. Wow. Um, where whenever I came back up to central Texas, I was kind of more confined to one county because we had troopers in the surrounding counties. And it was just a more of a DPS presence in that area. So I, you know, we'd, I didn't really need to get into their areas if I didn't have to. If something took me over there, I could still, of course, do my thing. Yeah. Um, and that happened. You know, where we would have pursuits from another county, and those troopers are on that pursuit, and we're listening, and we know that they're coming our direction. Next thing you know, they're crossing county lines, and we're linking back up with them, and now we're working that with them in our area. Yeah. That happens all the time. Yeah. Um, do you know how many uh, DPS troopers there are ballpark? I don't. I really don't. Yeah. I'm not sure. No, I mean, no idea? I really don't have a good number. No, yeah. not my, not like just off the top of my head. I really don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, thousands. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. All over Texas. Sure. Uh, you know, that's another part of, of, of our function, you know, is we have such a big state that that we have a, uh, a, a law enforcement presence in very, very rural areas of Texas yeah. where sometimes they only have like a city marshal, yeah. like maybe one law enforcement personnel in yeah. that whole area where now you can have a, a trooper there and he can assist. And then in, in those areas, those troopers actually end up finding themselves doing a lot more. Yeah. They'll respond to domestics and stuff like that, where that's not traditionally what a trooper would do. Yeah. Um, but they do in some of those areas. Yeah. I mean, like where my kennel facility is located, uh, there is no police department in the county. It's a very small county. So there's a, a handful of sheriff's deputies. There's, I think there's five or six and then the sheriff and that's it, you know? Um, so there's, I wouldn't say a heavy DPS presence, but you definitely see them, <coughs> excuse me, rolling through there pretty regularly, you know, doing all manner of different shit. Um, exactly. You know, kind of what you're saying when you spent uh, time back up in Austin, just doing the normal DPS thing after your time down at the border, is there uh, crazy high speed chases you got into there or what, like what was uh, what's something you can share from there? Yeah, sure. Kind of a funny one. I got one in the uh, in the Austin area, and some of these uh, agencies have no pursuit policies, or they're very restrictive on their pursuit policy. Where DPS traditionally is, um, uh, where I guess we're just a little bit more aggressive in that arena, right? Yeah. So I had a person run for me, and um, just for the hell of it, or was there a circumstance that? No, I th and, and unfortunately, that woman got away. However. Uh, we got her later, but uh, I think that she had dope, mm -hmm. and her strategy was is kind of like evade erratically, and that type of driving behavior meets the indicators for some particular agencies, and they they terminate. Yeah, or she didn't realize she was being chased by a trooper, and I'm not stopping. Yeah, and so I just kept up with her, and there was a point in time where we crossed paths. She was going through intersections and like. So doing it was like not on the highway. It was in. It went into a, a you know municipality area, yeah. and we crossed paths. She was like doing circles in the in the middle of a, a light intersection, and I put eyes on her and I saw her, and she gave me a look like, "Are you serious? Like, when are you going to stop?" Because <laughs> I think she expected yeah. I would just stop, and she probably had dope in the car. Yeah, and um, unfortunately, she was in a really fast sports car, and um, what was she in? An Audi S4 coupe, 
And uh, so she got away. Uh, a few troopers from other areas um, assisted me. I actually lost contact with her for a moment there, regained contact with her. You can tell she was also just like, seriously? Um, so I, I, I definitely was given my Tahoe everything it had. Yeah. Everything that car had, I gave it. And uh, she was just in a position where she got away. And that happens, you know. But it's all good, right? Because I put eyes on her. And now I can, now I, that gave me something to do for the next few months. I'm like, <laughs> oh, no, all sure. I've got is time. I'm a state cop. So yeah. you're going to get away from me now. That's fine. But uh, I've got a fusion center. I've got CID guys. I've got all these tools to my disposal. I can work with Austin Police Department. We've got tools to, you know, find people like that. And, uh, and I also have the ability to, you know, track her down and, and go find her. Yeah. And, uh, yep. Got her. She got her. Got her arrested. Uh, in in a case like that, what was the original indicator that made you want to pull her over in the first place? Um, I, if I remember correctly, I think she ran a stop sign. And it was near her her home, and um, so it was one of those things where she ran a stop sign. I believe, if I remember correctly, I was not in the best position to just see it and get right up on her. I had to kind of go down, turn around, and she saw me. She saw me from a distance. And just punched it. So as soon as I even got close, before I even put my lights on, she she started running. So then in that situation, you know, of course, I'm turning my lights on, getting everything going. I get close enough where I was able to get her license plate information, and that helps yeah. quite a bit. It gives me a lot of other things I can go to afterwards if she gets away. But then what was also kind of interesting about that one was, again, we kind of crossed paths. So I got visual PID on her face. Yeah. And that helped with the case to identify her later, later on. Because she'd be like, well, it wasn't me in the car. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. like my body camera and my, my camera in my car would suggest otherwise. Yeah. Because we crossed paths multiple times. She was all over the place, up, down, left, right, turning around in circles, trying yeah. to like fake me out and everything, trying to just drive very erratically, extremely high speeds. I mean, she was even working her car so much where it was smoking. Wow. It, she worked her car so much, as a matter of fact, she ended up getting away from me. She had to bail out of that car and left it at a business. And I helped that with my investigation, talking to that business and getting some cooperation from the management and learning about what she did with the car and where she went after that. And that all played a role into it. But her car essentially broke down. Oh, wow. And it's Audi. It's a decent yeah. car. Yeah. So, I mean, at, at that point, is it evading arrest? Is it uh, reckless? I mean, what, mm -hmm. what are all the... Certainly uh, evading. Um, and she was already wanted as well, I believe. I believe she already had a warrant. So I charged her with, you know, the initial traffic violation, evading. And then I created my own warrant for her for evading. So now she's got two warrants, the existing one and the one that I had her on. And... Um, I didn't charge her with reckless. Um, I very well could have, but it's it, at that time you look at the charge and what's the greater charge, right? If I'm charging her with something that's a, a greater charge than reckless driving, potentially it's not even necessary. Yeah. Um, but also like with reckless, strangely enough, and although she was driving erratically, there's particular elements of that law that you really have to show and prove. You have to really put the public in the in public property in danger and so um 
And like I said, she was driving erratically. I, I probably could have charged her with, that was one where I probably could have charged her with uh, reckless driving. But, you know, she's already wanted. I'm creating a, you know, I'm going after her for evading. And uh, so that's what, that's what we went with. And so for you, for you guys, it sounds like the, the autonomy for a state trooper in terms of charges is significantly higher than a, a PD guy, right? Like, or, or what you can charge somebody with, or, or is it pretty... Same. No, yeah, no, that, that's not a bad way to put it, autonomy. I'll give you an example. When I was on the border, there was a domestic incident that we were just in the vicinity of, and the sheriff's office had, to, had, had responded. And the deputies were down there. They, they kind of get an idea of what's going on. And I was interested in that, right, because it's not totally the traditional role of our agency. However, we know those laws. We're taught those laws. And he was like, well, we're going to wait for a, a supervisor now. And I said, okay, what, what are you doing that for? And he was like, well, then once the supervisor gets here, we explain all the circumstances to him, and then it, a decision can be made on maybe if there's going to be charges or if there's not going to be charges. And that's d- department dependent. But in that situation, I was like, oh, that's really interesting because in this situation, I could just step in and say, I'm not doing any of that. Mm-hmm. I'm taking you to jail. I'm looking at all of the elements of the case formulating my decision based off my training knowledge and, and um, experience and I can affect the arrest by myself. I don't need the ap- approval from a supervisor or anything like that. I, I have that autonomy. Yeah. And so there is that element of that also with the, um, but you know, and, and like f- frequently a lot of our, our cases go federal. So if you know, a trooper gets a $20 million Coke load, that's probably going to be something that a federal agency is interested in. Yeah. And so they'll look at it. We collaborate. Next thing you know, the case goes federal. Yeah, I got you. Uh, you mentioned your work in your Tahoe. Um, is it, I mean, obviously, it's not a stock Tahoe. They do something to them, right? I mean. Oh, man, I'm going to give away this nugget. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, they, they, do, they do do something to them, unfortunately. Uh, you know, like back in the day where – our agency had like the LX five Oh, the coyote or not the coyote, the, uh, the old school Mustang, you know, mm-hmm. the Fox body Mustang in the late nineties, they had, um, Z 28 Camaros. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I do think we actually have an hell, a Hellcat in the Houston area, mm-hmm. but for the most part, every, every vehicle, I would say the explorers, they do have the police interceptor package, which is the, the hottest little, um, twin turbo V six motor that you can get in that Explorer. And Which pretty, is what the same as a Raptor. They're pretty quick. No, it's the uh, you know the EcoBoost twin turbo where you're going to get. It would be the same engine that I think you would get in the F one fifty EcoBoost V six. I mean, that's variant. what the the V six Raptor is. That it's the oh. three and a half liter EcoBoost. I mean, now they have the Raptor R, which is the V eight, but. Right. The standard Raptor is uh, yeah, it's three and a half liter EcoBoost. It's four four hundred and fifty horse maybe. I think they tune that one up. It's it's yeah. the explorer's not that fast. I can guarantee you that. I I'm a car guy myself. I heard you're a car guy. Yeah. But uh, uh I had a five O. I had a Fox. I mean a yeah a Coyote Mustang with a five liter. You know, big Ford fan and big, actually completely separate all this automotive enthusiast. But um, no the uh, the Explorer. It's just a. Th- I think it's a th- I think it is a three point five liter. Yeah. But it's it's not tuned like gotcha. like like the Raptor. Um. And the, the Tahoes are lowered. Oh, okay. So it helps Handles with the maneuverability better. and everything, but it's the 5.3, yeah. and it's a dog. I mean, are they governed? 
mean, can you do one fifty one fifty five? Yeah, you can go. You can go pretty fast. Yeah. You can go. I think the the fastest I ever got with mine was, and and it wouldn't go anymore. Like it ain't going nowhere. And that was in that pursuit that I was telling you about, where the car was trying to run him over. Yeah, run that trooper off the road about one thirty two. It won't go faster than that. Not the Tahoe. Another thing with troopers is is we're also like the culture of the troopers are readiness. Because also, we are also that force that is able to deploy anywhere in Texas at any given moment, a hurricane. Um, I helped out in Rockport whenever the hurricane came through and completely devastated Rockport. I spent a week over there because those PD officers, their houses were gone. So they were getting their lives together. And in that situation, you can institute us. And we can take over the city policing uh, while they get their lives together. So we have to have our vehicles. What I'm getting at is loaded the fuck. They're out. loaded the fuck down. Yeah, I got you. So I mean, you got to have like your your go bag is your go truck. Like I mean, it's, it's fucking, a go truck. You got to be ready to do fucking everything. Yep. Yeah, that's why. And we've got you know multiple weapon systems, spikes. There's there's interdiction tools, scopes. Um, there's there's troopers who have scales um, to weigh loads. Yeah. A um, lot of heavy equipment. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, it's a fascinating um, profession. I mean, the the state trooper in any state seems like they're always regarded as like that notch above. I know, you know, growing up in Iowa, the Iowa State Patrol, like those dudes were fucking like, and you and you see it similarly. Like there, there's there just seems to be a higher standard. And I'm not knocking regular PD guys, but it just seems like every state trooper, no matter what state, like you you look at them and and they they just walk fucking different they look different like they they just carry themselves with a different air it seems like to me you know yeah and i would also say and i feel good about this is like with our agencies it's a higher degree of uh um professionalism and integrity you know there's like there's no we don't there's no room for bullshit yeah in our agency i mean we we represent the state across the entire state all different walks of life all different types of cities we I think we've we've got you know some of the highest uh, levels of integrity. Far less likely to have that bad apple. Of course, you're going to have that bad apple no matter what you're in. Yeah. You're going to have stuff like that. But I just think it's a lot less prevalent in in our agency because we do hold ourselves to a really high standard. Yeah, um, and the selection's pretty tough. I know too. Um, I know you can't get into into what you're doing now. Uh, I am curious, like culture wise within your organization um how big of a role do politics play if at all like do they tell you guys leave politics the fuck out of it i don't want to know where you stand like does that play a role yeah we can't i mean we are kind of um that we do have rules and policy that covered stuff like that you know um you know we got to kind of be fair and keep 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 our keep out of stuff like that polarizing issues and stuff like that however however go vote yeah like they're like we're encouraged you know go vote your convictions yeah and do your civic duties sure um um but yeah i mean uh i found it interesting where some agencies are way more tied up with all that we are less yeah so like and i've i've actually seen it we're like a pd officer and to just explain this briefly, would arrest a person for this particular crime, and that uh, DA or or magistrate would be like, nah. 
And they've got that ability to just be like, nah, we don't need to be accepting this charge. When a trooper comes in with that same charge, they're like, okay, book them. Yeah. You like know? they don't have the ability to. Well, I mean, because, like, you, we're, we're enforcing state law. It is what it is. Yeah. Like, you may have control over your city council and, your, and have inf- political influence over your particular agency and kind of maybe restrict them from doing some certain things. But this is a state charge. But I'm a state cop. This is a state law. Yeah. It was broke. I'm presenting this person to be booked in yeah. in a total lawful manner. So it's, I think there's, they're a little bit uh, less likely to be resistant towards us. Yeah. Is the, is ultimately the governor kind of in charge of you guys? I mean, like, are you hit or are you his boys kind of, is that, that how it works? Like he's ultimately your boss. Yeah. He's kind of like the commander in chief yeah. okay. of, of, uh, of us, of course, we have our leadership hierarchy. Right. And our director works, you know, um, right there closely with him frequently. But, um, yeah, you know, in a certain extent, because, you know, when it comes to allocating resources for um, disasters and to help police particular areas that are that need it uh, or to increase a presence on the border, you know, those those decisions are coming from that, that yeah, high. Yeah. Um, fascinating shit. Is there anything I didn't ask you about, uh, it really anything, I guess, thus far that I should have or, or that's worth uh, asking you about? No, I don't think so, man. I know we've been going a while. I, I know just uh, before we wrap up here, you're big into, into finances, yeah. uh, financial stuff. What, uh, can you offer a few, and I know you have a YouTube channel, which again, we'll, we'll link in the description, but um, a, a quick, why are you into that other than the obvious you want to make fucking money? But uh, And then secondly, like top three things financial advice wise, like what, what would you give people? Sure. Um, and first and foremost, yeah. I mean, I am in it because I want to make money. Yeah. <laughs> There's, I'm not, I'm not afraid to hide that fact. Yeah. I'm a car guy, man. When I, when I retire, I want to go to a Porsche dealership and, is that and, your dream car? I mean, there's a lot, I got a lot of dream cars. I'd like, yeah. I'd love a vet, you yeah. know, but I would love to just be in a position or GT 500. Yeah. Be in a position where I can just go to the dealership and be like, you know, I want that GT 500 and here's cash. And, that, and that's not a big deal for me. Yeah. You know, I'm just make that. So be able to spend money on the things that I really enjoy and it not have to hurt me. But in order to do that, I mean, you got to have a good amount of money. Yeah. You got to be smart with your money and have built that <coughs> accordingly. And so what kind of motivated me from the, from the get go was, um, you know what, to be honest, man, ever after I, in my life, when I went to Marsoc, uh, again, I kind of felt like that imposter. So I felt like I had to be better at everything everything because i've seen guys that i'm operating with they're good in everything they're not just good in our job and being an operator man they're good and they're 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 just savvy dudes man they're they're smarter than the average guy so i i i never imagined going to college or wanting to go to college but being in that environment that was very normal to be college educated so i was like shit all right let me go to college next thing you know i'm in college never would have imagined that that would have happened but i did and 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 just so like elevating I'm getting smart, man, making sure that I'm living life optimally in the right way for myself and for my wife. So finance was one of those things. And I knew that. So when I became a contractor, I got a 401k, never knew what fund I was invested in, what percentage of my paycheck was going towards my 401k. I did not have a TSP in the Marine Corps because I thought it would be crazy for you to take money from my paycheck that I'm not even getting paid much to begin with. So I never had any investments in the Marine Corps get into the contracting world, have a normal company. Now I have a 401k and it was towards 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 2016. And that was 
pretty close to the height of a bull market. So my 401k did good. And I looked at that and I'm like, holy shit, I've got, I've got money. And I'm like, but I'm getting ready to leave now. I'm going to a, a completely new career field. What do I do? I know I need to be smart with this chunk of change and, 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 and allow it to be a foundation for my retirement because I don't have my military retirement. I got involuntarily separated. So my money became very important to me. Um, and so I just started educating myself, just very straightforward YouTube. I mean, I just started looking at the stock market intrigued me, you know? Um, and so I started learning how to invest in the stock market and made some mistakes along the way and uh, ultimately kind of formulated a, uh, uh, an approach to investing that I think is um, perfect for me in my situation and really for the for most middle-class Americans. Um, I understood that people get wealthy a few different ways in America. Real estate, the stock market, and like if you're a business owner and, and you can kind of create your own destiny like that. That's really it though. That's where the majority of wealth in America comes from. And the stock market's been a big part of that since the beginning of time. And we have a lot of economic issues and geopolitical issues that constantly put the stock market in flux. Dude, such has been the issue since the beginning of America. Yeah. However, throughout all of that, the stock market has always gone up. Some people are speculative and they think that it's, that it's like a gamble. But if you do it right, um, I would argue that it's not a gamble. And you don't have to be risky. You can do it very conservatively. Um, and a lot of that information is open source. It is out there. And so I educated myself on it and, uh, I, I don't do really anything short term. I'm not day trading. I think that is a loser's game. And the majority of people that try to actively trade stocks on an individual picking stock basis, don't do it well, yeah. even professional fund managers. It's hard yeah. with trying to beat the bench, the benchmark of the average market return, which is eight to 10%. And most Mutual fund managers, some of the best hedge fund managers, struggle with just simply being the average market return. Um, but the potential there and the prospect is, of, well, maybe I can get a 20% return, 50% return. Um, so I invest in individual stocks, but I'm buying companies like a, the Warren Buffett style. So I'm looking at good quality companies that are cash flow positive, so they've been around a while. Like when a new company gets a lot of hype, because they've got some awesome product that's just all over the news. And people ask me, you know, are you going to invest in that? And I'm like, hell no. It's a brand new company, man. I mean, just because it's got a good product doesn't mean that the the, the management knows how to run a company. Yeah. Like, you got to give the company some time. they got to run a company and make sure that they can allocate capital properly, invest accordingly, invest back in themselves the right way, and manage the company and prove themselves as a valuable company. At that time, once they've been able to kind of do that, then I'm interested in buying their stock if it's currently trading at a good valuation. But the, the other thing about stocks that most people don't get right, and which is why I quite frankly don't really encourage anybody to really invest in individual stocks, is because there's a difference between the share price of a stock and the value of the company. It's like buying a Ford Raptor or a GT500. These cars have markups, dealer markups. The car is worth 80 grand. The dealership's selling it for 120. Do you want to buy something that is worth 80 grand for 120? It's the same thing for a stock. You could look at a stock of a company and it's trading for $300 a share. Historically, Tesla, one of the most hyped stocks in the world, is always overvalued. Elon Musk himself has said it, and I just did a video on it, one of my last videos. 
talking in particular about Tesla stock and how I don't buy it, how I kind of, I go against the grain on Tesla because it's just not fairly valued. And I don't feel obligated to have it. There's hundreds of other good companies out there. Like, um, and so let me, I'll, I'll go into the, the one individual stock that I would say that I think most people probably should consider. Um, and that's Berkshire Hathaway. Um, Cause Berkshire Hathaway is Warren Buffett's company. Warren Buffett, of course, one of the best investors, arguably, the best investor who's ever lived and he's still doing it 90 years old and um and you can buy his company's stock for free and that's kind of crazy because his company's a conglomerate they own multiple companies seize candy geico insurance etc etc dairy queen dairy queen fucking dairy absolutely so they own it's a multitude of different companies so when you buy that stock you're kind of essentially buying a fund a basket of stocks. So you get a lot of diversification. They own a big stake in Occidental Petroleum. They have um, positions in multiple different sectors. So he's been able to maintain a 20% annualized rate of return on Berkshire Hathaway as a company since the 60s. One of the most famous hedge fund managers, Peter Lynch, who managed the Magellan Fund, is most notable for you know, market-beating returns north of 20%, but he only managed that for about 15 years. And Warren Buffett's been able to manage double the average market returns since the 60s. And in order for me to invest in a, a hedge fund like I just spoke of, a million dollar minimum and maybe 8 to 10% uh, fees for them to do that, where I can literally buy Berkshire Hathaway stock on Robinhood for free right now. And I do. What is it per share on there? It depends. There's two classes of shares. The Class A shares are over $400,000 a share. It's one of the most valuable companies in the world. It's ran by the most, some of the most brilliant people. There's Class B shares that are for the average person, and um, they're trading uh, in the $300 range right now, just oh. $300 a share. And the good thing with Berkshire, I mean, uh, with Robinhood and these new um, brokerages is, you don't have to even buy a full share. When I started getting into this and learning about stocks, I was buying $50 of Microsoft there, $50 of Apple there, $50 of Berkshire there. And to where now I'm investing, you know, thousands of dollars every month, like a good conservative investor. Um, you know, Dave Ramsey suggests, and most financial advisors would suggest the average person to try to save or invest 10 to 15% into their investments, their 401k, their IRA. And, um, I'm kind of more along the lines of, nah, man. Like, I don't even want to have to rely on Social Security. That's relying on the government. We all know how the government functions. Yeah. It's not going to be around when you yeah. and I retire. I want to be able to take, be self-sustainable, take my own retirement into my own hands. So I invest more like 40% of my average take-home into my investments every month. And so I'm very aggressive with that. Frugal spending, you know, try to be conservative, live below my means. That's what I talk about it and encourage, you know, on my channel and, and through my Instagram, which is a little bit more active right now. But I think it's important because again, it kind of comes back to that self-reliance. Don't let the destiny of your retirement be in somebody else's hands. Yeah. I've seen elderly people struggle and live pay, uh, social security paycheck to social security paycheck. And I don't want to be in that situation. You know, I want to be able to have a lot of freedom. Um, and, People say, you know, it's not all about money or money can't buy happiness. And, you know, I kind of kick back there and I'm like, maybe for you. And that, that's one way to think about it. But for me, it certainly allows for freedom and options and freedom and options facilitate happiness. Yeah. 
and prosperity. Yeah. In, in, in prosperity, I, I don't, when I retire, my, my mindset is not like the traditional 401k where I'm just going to start withdrawing from it and dwindling that pile. I want to continue investing because I know that time is the most important aspect of investing in compound interest. So the longer that I can invest, the better um, and the more prosperity and wealth that I'll be able to build. So that's what's really important to me. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, you're obviously knowledgeable on it and it's cool to see, uh, you know, the path that you've taken in life and, and now your passion for that. It's, it's awesome. Um, anything else you want to talk about before we wrap it up here? Oh man, that's it. I think we've covered everything. Yeah. I do have a couple of parting gifts, uh, in true, right on, true man. fashion with a uh, mic drop. Thank you. Go ahead and o open those up. One's pretty self-explanatory with the of course, uh, of course. challenge coin. And then, uh, that ass. The other one is champion choice silver and John Johnson hooking uh, all the guests wow. up. Wow, yeah. man! So, thank you. Yeah, that is awesome. <clears throat> yeah, it's good stuff. So uh, the uh, the cursory mic drop very buckle. Texas. So very Texas. Love it. Yeah, Love throw, it, throw that on with your uniform, right? Oh yeah, hell yeah, brother! <laughs> yeah, you you couldn't do that, could you? No, yeah, I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't. Yeah, awesome stuff. Well, I tell you, man, you've lived a a hell of a life. Your your journey is uh, is truly fascinating. I mean, you've done so many different things and. Uh, you know, I think we've been pushing four hours here and feel like I could talk to you for, uh, for four more, no problem. But, um, I, I just want to thank you for your service, um, you know, and, and your continued service to the, the great state of Texas, uh, and just everything that you've done and, and for taking the time to share your story. It's a, it's a great one. And, uh, I have no doubt that the, uh, listeners will, will find it fascinating and enjoy it. So thanks for coming. Thank you, man. I'm humbled to be here and, um, uh, thanks for what you're doing, you know, oh, with, yeah. this, with this podcast and yeah, giving people, uh, you know, um, a community to follow. Yeah. It's an honor to do it. So, uh, for the listener again, thank you for your support <clears throat> show after show. I can't thank you enough. Uh, if you didn't enjoy it, feel free to go choke yourself. And until next time, this is Mike drop. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah. Yes. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. ChumbaCasino has over 100 casino-style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast. With first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained. Covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. 
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.